Welcome to the 42nd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Atrazine is one of the most popular weed killers in North America. Unfortunately, studies show that in states like Minnesota, it is also a leading contaminant of surface water in rural areas. Because of its mobility and ability to stick around for a long time, atrazine has even been detected in urban bodies of water. That troubles Tyrone Hayes. Hayes is a leading amphibian endocrinologist and professor in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of California, Berkeley. Research conducted by Hayes and other scientists indicates that amphibians exposed to even extremely low levels of the herbicide tend to suffer serious health problems. As Hayes points out, there are currently some 30 papers out that document these impacts. Even more troubling is that studies are starting to show a link between atrazine and human health problems. Hayes has been very outspoken about his view that atrazine is a dangerous toxin. His willingness to speak out has won him some enemies within the agrochemical industry, particularly Syngenta, the world's number one manufacturer of atrazine. He's also not popular with state and federal officials who have repeatedly assured the public that the herbicide is safe. 2004, he was uninvited to give a keynote at a conference organized by the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency because there were concerns his remarks would offend agribusiness interests. To Hayes and his supporters, this incident is just one more example of how agribusiness and government agencies often work together to suppress scientific information related to the negative effects of chemicals such as atrazine. Paul Watzka would agree. Watzka, a hydrologist, was fired by the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency in the spring of 2007 after he made a request to testify before a Minnesota Legislative Committee. Watzka's testimony, which he was not allowed to give at the legislature, was going to focus on multi-year research he has done showing that atrazine was present in southeast Minnesota surface waters at unsafe levels. The hydrologist was also prepared to speak about how he felt voluntary best management practices promoted by the Minnesota Department of Agriculture were not adequately dealing with the atrazine issue. Waska has filed a federal whistleblower lawsuit charging that his freedom of speech has been violated. Well, you can't suppress important information forever. On October 10, 2007, the Land Stewardship Project and several other groups worked with Minnesota Senator John Marty and Minnesota Representative Ken Jumper to bring Hayes and Waska to the Minnesota Capitol, where they were able to talk about atrazine, the importance of scientific integrity, and what needs to be done to protect environmental and human health. This podcast will feature an excerpt of a presentation given October 10th by Hayes during a special fundraiser for Waska's legal fund. The next podcast will feature a presentation given by Waska at the same event. Atrazine, in case you don't know, I assume you all know, but atrazine, here's what it looks like. It's an herbicide or weed killer used primarily on corn. It's been used for 48 years, so I can still say it's older than me, but it won't live as long as me if I have anything to do with it. We use 80 million pounds annually in the United States, so I can also happily say it weighs more than me. I'm going to keep it that way. And it's used in more than 80 countries. So it's more well-traveled than me as well. But it's now outlawed in Europe, whereas the company likes me to say it has been denied regulatory approval. And again, as many of you know, the reason that's significant is the company that makes it is in Switzerland. So we're using 80 million pounds of something that's not allowed in the home country. As many of you know, what atrazine does is the following. Testosterone is the male hormone. 
Frogs are making the same testosterone that we're making. And atrazine turns on a machinery that converts the male hormone into the female hormone, estrogen, or the generator of estrus, resulting in chemical castration, demasculization, and feminization of males that have been exposed to this chemical at fairly low doses. The result is animals in the laboratory, such as this North American leopard frog, develop testis. These have been dissected. But they also grow eggs in their testis. That's what these big round structures are bulging out of this animal's testis. Now, I've been working not just with Syngenta. I've been working with the EPA on these issues. And I showed the Environmental Protection Agency. I said, look what atrazine does. And they said, well, yeah, we see that. But we're not sure if that's an adverse effect. Now, I don't know about you, and maybe the ladies won't relate to this. So, fellas, I don't know about you, but the thought of a dozen chicken eggs bursting out of my testicle (laughs) brings me a little concern. In other cases, we showed that animals develop multiple reproductive structures. So these are African clawed frogs that have testes, ovaries, a large testis, more ovaries, which is not normal. (laughs) You hear what I said, brothers and sisters? It's not normal. The company wants to convince you that it's normal so that we can keep using the compound and that I'm making a big deal out of nothing. And despite what, what, what happened in Jurassic Park, this does not naturally normally occur in male frogs. Males should not have ovaries. That's just a, a general rule of thumb. I want to give you an idea of the magnitude of the problem. These problems, these reproductive abnormalities are produced in frogs at levels of 0.1 parts per billion. That's one one thousandth of a grain of salt in a fish aquarium. That's not a lot. The package of atrazine more or less recommends application at a rate that's equivalent to 2.9 to 29 million parts per billion. So it's applied, and I should clear, I'm not speaking against farmers, but it's applied, the recommended rate of application, I'll tell you who I'm speaking against in a minute. The The recommended application is 290 million times what we're using in the laboratory. These are the average or minimum and maximum detectable levels of atrazine found in agricultural runoff, temporary pools, permanent waters, rivers and lakes, and precipitation. Here's what it takes to make one of these hermaphroditic frogs. So here are all the bodies of water that would be at risk based on this published data that aren't mine. These are data that we've gleaned from across the literature. There's enough atrazine in rainwater to chemically castrate and make hermaphroditic frogs. A half million pounds of atrazine come down in the rainwater every year. Perry Jones of the U.S. Geological Survey, I heard him speak here in Minnesota, and he said he can measure atrazine in the rainwater in Minnesota from when they apply it in Kansas. It can travel 600 to 1,000 miles. And at the same time, the Environmental Protection Agency says three parts per billion, 30 times what it takes to chemically castrate a frog is okay in your drinking water. In fact, I was doing these studies in my laboratory. The Environmental Health and Safety Committee said, what are you going to do with the contaminated wastewater? I said, I'm going to take it home and drink it. Because it's got 30 times less. See, I thought it was funny too. They don't don't like that kind of thing. So brothers and sisters, in keeping with my theme, I'm here to warn you that there are those among us who love atrazine for the wrong reasons. We have to be wary of the false prophets. People who have the same letters behind their name that I have behind mine. People who we grow to trust. People who call themselves scientists. Love atrazine sometimes for the wrong reason. One of our wayward brothers, Dr. James Carr, wrote in 2002. And, and these people, they, they suffer from what I call 
linguinal ambidexterity. <laughs> they speak out of both sides. Linguinal, I just made that up. Linguinal ambidexterity. He said in 2002, we have been unable to reproduce the low concentration effects in the larynx and gonads of the Xenopus levis tadpole that have been reported elsewhere in the scientific literature. Comments like that are designed to confuse the public. Two doctors can't agree. It turns out, though, when he finally published this stuff, look at that. See, my, there's my hermaphrodite, two testes, large testes, more over. There's his, two testes, two ovaries, large testes. He produced the same kinds of effects that we produce. It turns out that when I pointed out to our wayward brother that there are 38 studies not funded by Syngenta that show adverse effects of atrazine, 38 published studies not funded by Syngenta, and only nine studies funded by the same little group of Syngenta-funded people. When I pointed that out to him, he said in 2003, just a year later, it was actually on Valentine's Day, he wrote this to me, he said, I don't think it, his data contradicts Hayes. My research speaks for itself. I am not responsible for how Syngenta chooses to characterize it. Now, in 2002, he was issuing press releases saying he couldn't repeat the, you saw it. By Halloween, by October, he was saying things like this. This is a quote again. The important issue is for everyone involved to come to grips with and stop minimizing the fact that independent laboratories have demonstrated an effect of atrazine on gonadal differentiation in frogs. There is no denying this, our wayward brother said. He just said in 2002 he couldn't repeat it. There are other people who want us to believe that corn and that we have to grow more corn at at any cost. And I know somebody just reminded me, you don't irrigate necessarily in this way in Minnesota, but I want to point out to you what we would be giving up if, if we gave up atrazine, if we gave up our love for atrazine. I like to use this particular figure. This was shot over Nebraska, I believe. Because atrazine, it's reported, only increases corn yield by 1.2%. Simple geometry will show you that the way we irrigate most of our corn in the Midwest wastes 21% of each one of those square plots. We only eat 1.8%. So what you have to think about is I'm going to talk to you now, not just about the fraud data. I'm going to talk to you about the impairment of human health as a result of atrazine exposure. And what you have to do, we just got through with the Senate hearing, is you have to weigh the potential environmental health and public health costs against a 1.2% increase in a crop that we only eat 1.8% of in a world where 20% of us will die of malnutrition. So you have to weigh those potential health costs to the environment and to ourselves. And of course, as somebody mentioned, the new problems are that this portion is increasing. The price of corn has gone up fourfold. You have to weigh what that means to the food because the pig farmers and the cow cattle farmers, how are you gonna pay that price without an impact on one, the consumer, and on the farmers that are growing the meat? Part of the other problem is we're now heading towards this ethanol thing I'm clean and burning fuel, but my understanding is in Minnesota, you're distilling the ethanol using coal. My understanding is that it takes more energy to grow the corn, to drive the corn, to make the ethanol than you're going to get out of it for fuel. And my understanding is there's a guy at Cornell that says 97% of the U.S.'s surface will have to be covered in corn for us to start to make a dent in the gasoline and our dependence on petroleum products. But yet, we're using this as an excuse for why we're going to use more atrazine, why we're going to grow more corn, why we're going to push the pig and cattle farmers. False prophets. I understand that there's some claim that atrazine has some big impact on erosion. But I've seen no data that atrazine directly has an impact. 
I think there's some data that no-till has an impact. I hear that that may even be questionable. I'm no expert. I'm just reporting what I've heard. So we have to really wonder why, we, why we're so dependent on atrazine. And I'll tell you the reason right here. This was at the 2003 EPA Scientific Advisory Panel. This is the Kansas Corn Growers Association said, I don't think, because Europe, remember, has banned atrazine. They're still in business. They still got corn. He said, I think the European system is just so much different. It is based mainly on detection, and because of that, they have moved to other products, and they also, because of those changes, are not as competitive in the world market in the production of the commodities. That is a fact. So the real reason we're doing it is not to feed the world, not to fuel the world, but somebody is making a little bit of money. So we have to worry about false prophets. There are others among us who love atrazine for the wrong reasons, and they are even more adept than those who speak with the lingual ambidexterity. Seven-headed beasts that speak out of all sides of their mouth. And you can call them whatever you want. You can call them whatever you want. But you must be wary. They spoke here, brothers and sisters, they spoke here, they've testified here before the legislature, the beast, Ann Lindsay in 2005, she said, EPA, however, she's talking about me, EPA, however, has never seen either the results from any independent investigator published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, or, she said, the raw data from Dr. Hayes' additional experiments. She said she never saw my data. This was in 2005. The EPA, in 2002, wrote to me, and this can be verified, it went through two public email systems, they wrote, Tyrone, that's me. Tyrone, they wrote, although you are not required to provide EPA with any information, you have been very cooperative and have shared both the raw data, that's the raw data she said the EPA has never seen, have shared the raw data and standard operating procedures from your research. Additionally, you have spent a considerable amount of time helping the Office of Pesticide Program to understand the significance of your data, and you have provided insightful reviews of similar research efforts. Tom Steger, EPA. Multiple, multiple talking heads. They also testified to you, Ann Lindsay, the EPA, before Minnesota State Legislature. EPA, oh, that's the same one. They testified that none of my studies, they said, none of the studies on atrazine were conducted in accordance with standard protocols. So they claim they never saw the raw data, and they're saying, I didn't follow standard protocol. That's what they said to your legislature. But in that same statement she wrote in or said in 2005, because there are no standardized test methods for any of these studies, blah, blah, blah. So they're saying that, one, I, they didn't see the raw data that they saw, multiple heads, and two, of the raw data that they didn't see that they saw, it didn't follow the standard protocols that don't exist. I testified before the legislature in 2005, and, and I read a quote from Glenn Fox, a partner of mine, It says, in epidemiology, diseases and wildlife, the occurrence of an association in more than one species and species population is very strong evidence for causation. And so I said, look, if we've shown this in multiple species of amphibians, we kind of got something going on. And I said, it's been published that the same things occur in fish, reptiles, birds, and mammals. And Ann Lindsay said that no such data existed. I, I said that the fact that atrazine can reduce testosterone and increase estrogen occurs across species. And Ann Lindsay told your legislature the following. She said, 
It has been claimed that research on frogs shows that atrazine causes changes in production of aromatase, an enzyme that is involved in the conversion of testosterone to estrogen. I underline involved because if you're an endocrinologist, you know aromatase is more than involved. It's the only way you can make estrogen. She went on to say, it has also been claimed that other scientists have shown similar effects in other species. And then she said, there is no direct scientific information to assess this hypothesis. So she said, I was making it up. In 2000, she made the statement to you in 2005. In 2000, it was shown in Europe that atrazine causes a decline in testosterone and a decline in sperm in rats. It's not my work. This is coming out of Europe. Shauna Swan showed in 2003, this is two years before she said there was no scientific information. And what Shauna Swan showed was that subfertile men in Missouri men who have low sperm count, can't get their wives pregnant, have significantly more atrazine in their urine than men who have no reproductive problems. And I don't know what it means, but the level of atrazine in these men's urine is equivalent to what it takes to chemically castrate a frog. Maybe it's a coincidence. Now I'm gonna change the y-axis because I wanna show you some more data that the EPA says doesn't exist. Lucas et al. in California, not me, another lab. See, the axis goes up to 240. The data is still down there show that here are atrazine levels in field workers, and now here's atrazine levels in applicators. Now somebody said something to me, but let me tell you what this means first. 2,400 parts per billion is 24,000 times the level that these men have who have fertility problems. 2,400 parts per billion is 24,000 times what it takes to chemically castrate and make a hermaphroditic frog. 2,400 parts per billion, these men, one of these guys, could pee in a bucket. Pardon my crudeness. Use the technical term. Can pee in a bucket. I can dilute it 24,000 times. One of these guys is urine. And I could use that diluted urine to chemically castrate 24,000 buckets of 30 tadpoles each. And the Center for Disease Control just last month published a study and said, oh, the atrazine was measured wrong here. The level's probably actually higher. And 70% of all Americans are probably exposed. Somebody said something today that got me a little bit disturbed in the hearing. They said, let's not, let's not attack the farmers. I'm not attacking the farmers. To me, the farmer is the biggest victim. If I'm attacking anybody, it's the false prophet. It's the scientist who backed this up for money. It's the EPA who's letting it happen. And your state agencies that are letting it happen. Nobody knows what happened to these men because they're Mexican migrant farm workers. Life expectancies are 50 and their health care isn't followed up on. I'm not attacking the farmer at all. I'm asking the farmers to come unite and love atrazine the way that I do so that we can fix this problem. The other half of the equation that Ann Lindsay says doesn't exist is does atrazine actually turn on aromatase and produce the estrogen that's associated with breast, cancer, breast tumors? And check this out. Here's another rat study that shows that testosterone's decrease in the presence of atrazine. But this other study went on to show that these rats with low testosterone are making e excess estrogen, just like we've seen in frogs, fish, turtles, alligators. And here is the kicker. This study was done in an EPA laboratory with the Syngenta guy working in it. Not only that, on the first page of this EPA study, they wrote, atrazine tested positive in the pubertal male screen that the Endocrine Disruptor Screening and Testing Committee is considering as an optional screen for endocrine disruptors. This was published in 2000, so I'm one of the first scientists to brag about what I didn't do. I wasn't the first one to call atrazine an endocrine disruptor. 
the Environmental Protection Agency lab called atrazine an endocrine disruptor in 2000. And in 2005, Ann Lindsay, the EPA, sat in front of your legislature and said there's no evidence to support the hypothesis. Five years prior, they made the statement. I talked to you about the prostate, or I will talk to you about more on the prostate and mammary cancer in rats. But there are also studies now showing that atrazine causes immune failure in rats, which are a surrogate for us. There are studies that show that atrazine causes neural damage when these animals are exposed in the womb and they can't learn and they have developmental problems. A study just came out showing that if you follow children who were conceived during the height of atrazine contamination in the spring, they have hyperactivity and learning problems. Okay, that's already been put, not by my lab. But what's more significant, what really moved me to come to events like this, what really moved me to get involved in these issues is the following. And, it, and it's a very selfish reason that I'm here. There's a study in rats that shows that atrazine causes abortion, four strains of rats. That work was done and published by an EPA laboratory. Same EPA that says there's no evidence. It testified before your legislature. Another EPA laboratory, now this is the second EPA laboratory, showed that of those mothers that give birth, her male sons are born with prostate cancer, prostate disease, even though they were never affected directly. A third EPA laboratory, same EPA that says there's no, there's no evidence, showed that the daughters of the mothers that give birth have poor mammary development, poor breast development, and here's how it looks. There's a controlled breast under the microscope. There's a breast from an animal that's exposed, whose mother was exposed to atrazine. And when they grow up, another paper was published showing that they can't properly feed their offspring and they have retarded growth and development. This animal is affected by atrazine that her grandmother was exposed to. So when I think about my daughter and when I think about this atrazine issue and what we're learning in these rats, this is what moves me because it's not about me and you. We've already been exposed. It's not about our children. They've already been exposed. Data in France suggests that once they banned atrazine, it was around for another 20 years. It's still around in the aquifers. That means our grandchildren will be exposed. If you ban and get rid of atrazine today, our grandchildren will be exposed. And these data, rat data, suggest that their granddaughters will be affected. So when I come to preach my sermon, when I give you a little bit of science with a little bit of passion, that passion is because I know what I want my granddaughter's granddaughter to say about the role, what role I played in the environment that she or he will be born into. And my code of ethics commands that I want the same thing for everyone's children that I want from mine. Because see, they've already shown that atrazine causes breast cancer to develop in rats. They want to argue with you though that the doses are high, but they don't know. That's the dose that was in the food. Nobody knows what dose ends up in the blood. Nobody knows what dose ends up in the urine. And then they argue, well, there was no increase in the incidence. It looks like an increase in incidence to me. But they say, well, no, it just changed the age of onset. In other words, if the controls had lived long enough, they would have gotten breast cancer too. Same rate. That's like saying, well, you're going to die anyway. We're just going to help it along. A little bit early. In humans... Now we're back to us. In human cell lines, it's been shown that if you expose human cancer cells to atrazine, they make aromatase and they make estrogen. Just like we see in fish, frogs, alligators, turtles, 
and rats. And a study in Kentucky, and Syngenta knew about this, very significant, shows that women whose well water is contaminated with atrazine are more likely to develop breast cancer. It's not my data. People are doing this independent of me. The prostate cancer is a special issue. Prostate cancer has increased 8.4 fold in one of Syngenta's factories that makes atrazine. When I testified last fall, he complained that I was misrepresenting the facts on the prostate issue. And he, he, the Syngentans, they constantly use terms like the farmers we serve, like they're giving you something. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read to you, and my time's just about up, but I want to read to you exactly what's in that Syngenta paper published in the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine. So that you know that I'm not misrepresenting anything, I'm going to read to you exactly what's in that paper. On page 1052, they wrote, the increase in all cancers combined seen in the overall study group was concentrated in the company employee group. That's Syngenta. They wrote on page 1052, the increase in prostate cancer in male subjects was concentrated in company employees. Prostate cancer. They wrote on page 1053, quote, the prostate cancer increase was further concentrated in actively working company employees. So if you go to work, you get prostate cancer. They wrote on page 1052, all but one of the cases occurred in men with 10 or more years since hire. So if you're loyal to the company, you get prostate cancer. They wrote on page 1053, so I'm not interpreting anything. I'm reading to you exactly what they wrote. They wrote, analysis restricted to company employees also found that the prostate cancer increase was limited to men under 60 years of age. 80% of prostate cancers in this country are men over 65. These guys are increasing prostate cancer 8.4 fold in 50 year old young men who are loyal to the company and work more than 10 years and who are active, who show up to work. And then they come to you and they use words like the farmers we serve. You need to ask what exactly are they serving you? Because if this is what they're doing to their company employees and then they argue with you, oh, we have better statistics and we have better screening methods then you need to ask yourself, if this is how they serve their employees, then how are they serving the farmers who use their product? The biggest thing I think you have to be wary of is the following. Here's what cancer is. A cell gets damaged. The estrogen receptor is important, like a lock and key, in causing that cancer to turn into a tumor. And every time I give this talk, I tell people, you don't have to believe anything I've said to you tonight. You only have to believe this one little piece. Here's what you have to believe, because that has nothing to do with me. You get breast cancer, you're more likely to get breast cancer after menopause. And breast cancer is estrogen dependent. So that means that you don't get breast cancer because you have more estrogen in your body. But your breast cancer will make its own estrogen. It expresses the machinery, it makes estrogen, and the breast cancer stimulates itself to grow by making estrogen. Here's why you don't have to believe me. Right now, what's become the number one treatment for breast cancer is a chemical called letrozole that blocks aromatase that knocks out estrogen, and it prevents your tumor from growing. You don't have to believe me. If you get breast cancer, this is what they're going to give you. At the same time, another company is exposing 70% of all Americans to atrazine, which turns on aromatase, increases estrogen, and causes your cancers to grow in the tumor. Here's the one slide you have to believe in. It's straight off their website. Novartis Oncology offers treatments for cancers that range from breast cancer. You know what Syngenta is? It used to be Novartis. So Novartis and AstraZeneca make an aromatase blocker to treat your breast cancer. Syngenta was the merger of the agricide of Novartis and AstraZeneca. I'll show you that in a minute. So the company 
that's giving you atrazine, which turns on your aromatase, turns around and sells you an aromatase blocker and says it's a thousand times better than any other breast cancer treatment. So you don't have to believe me, just believe this. And any five-year-old will know that both of these can't be true. Either atrazine induces aromatase and contributes to breast cancer, the number one cancer in women, or letrozole can't really knock out aromatase and treat your breast cancer. If you've got breast cancer and you're buying up their letrozole to block your aromatase, how is it going to work when 70% of all Americans are being exposed to atrazine, which is turning on your aromatase? Call them up and ask them, how's that supposed to work? So you don't have to believe me, just believe in the virus. And watch out. For more on the issue of atrazine and scientific integrity, see the Summer 2007 Land Stewardship Letter. It's available at www.landstewardshipproject.org. That's landstewardshipproject.org. Just click on Newsroom and follow the links to the Land Stewardship Letter. LSP has also posted several blogs on this issue, which are available under our Take Action section on the homepage. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and you'd like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.